everyone. Greg Morabito here. I am one of the hosts of the Eater Upsell. Uh, with me, as always, is your other host, Helen Rosner. And on today's episode of the Eater Upsell, we're chatting with Stella Parks, who is this brilliant dessert pastry blogger, recipe writer. And she has this book out right now called Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts where she has all these recipes for how to make these kind of nostalgia treats uh, at home and just the way that you think about them and just the way that you taste them. We're going to chat with Stella Parks, but actually, before we do that, Helen, I believe there's something you wanted to chat with me about. You published a story on Eater.com earlier this week about a subject that is near and dear to my heart, Chuck E. Cheese. I'm talking about Chuck E. Cheese. Chuck E. Cheese is hugely important to me. It's important to my childhood. It's important to my present. I have a mythical story about Chuck E. Cheese that I have been working on for like a year. It is the great white whale of my journalistic career. But in the past couple of weeks, Chuck E. Cheese made this tremendous announcement that they were retiring their animatronic rock band. Like the the robots are no more. And I want to know how it feels for you to have to chronicle the death of your own childhood. I don't know. I mean, I think it's kind of a stupid move just because like the nostalgia factor has got to be huge for for people like that now have kids that are bringing them to Chuck E. Cheese. And I think the idea that they're like, oh, well, the live uh, the live people in the Chuck E. Cheese character costumes are more popular in some markets than they, the creepy robots. I, I think that's a little bit misguided. I think they're kind of they're going to kind of have egg on their face when they realize that that the uh, the nostalgia factor is is really what's bringing people there. But how do you feel about this? Like, what 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 is your read well, on on, one the, on of the, the situation? Things that sort of like blackens my already black heart about this is like one of the rationales that Chuck E. Cheese corporate gave for retiring the animatronic band was that everybody is just looking at their phones. Like the reason that this existed in the first place, right, from like the founding of Chuck E. Cheese in the 1970s was to give some entertainment to the parents or to the kids who like had run out of tokens or whatever it might be. Like here is some stuff to look at. And now I don't know. I, I, I feel like this is my slide into middle age or something. But like for me, this has been the phones are ruining everything moment of my life. I didn't make the phone connection, but yeah, if phones are killing the creepy animatronic shitty robot band at Chuck E. Cheese, I mean, that like, is... That's uh, not a t- world I want to live in anymore. No, Millennials no. are killing creepy nostalgia, but it's not millennials, right? Like, the, well, maybe I guess millennials are having kids. We're technically millennials. I should clarify yeah, that. Like, I don't know. We're on the the weird upper cusp. But like I don't self-identify as somebody who grew up in January 1982. It was born in January 1982, but you know, I understand that yeah, sure. I think like, you know, the things that I think are fascinating about Chuck E. Cheese are that everything is automated, right? Like you play video games, you play ski ball and there's an automatic ball return. Like you don't ever interact with humans who do anything for you. You even like put money into a token giving machine. You don't like have human interaction. Your only human interactions at Chuck E. Cheese are when you turn in your tickets for a crappy plastic toy or when you place your order for your pizza. Oh, wow. I didn't even remember that, but that's so true, huh? It's kind of this weird, like, uh, very American that in a certain sense. It's like some extension of the automat or something, right, though, you know? fully automated family entertainment experience. And one of the parts that I just found so perfect about that, like, the thing that made it all come together was the fact that, like, even the entertainment was robots. Like, even the entertainment was automated. And I feel... So powerfully, like the loss of the robots is the true nail in the coffin of of everything that made it, like you said, sort of weird and creepy and slightly wrong, but also like thrilling. I mean, I feel like as a seven or eight year old, this was my first introduction to like, this is kind of fucked up. Yeah, they're creepy. Like they're almost like way creepier than you think they would even need to be when those robots were created. I mean, they're gigantic, first of all. They're kind of lumbering like and they kind of just have like very limited repetitive movements, kind of herky jerky. I, I and they have that sort of, of like intentional ugliness that so much stuff had in the 70s and 80s. I mean, yeah, big eyes and weird mouths and stuff like they're not cute. 
they're they're like no. adult sized creepy monsters. On a side note, what the hell's gonna happen to those robots when they're when they're decommissioned? Maybe they'll just like be bought up to become the servers at Vespertine or something like that. It totally fits in with the narrative of that restaurant. And Vespertine's uh, pizza arcade spinoff? I would, you know what, if a chef did a super high-end riff on a pizza arcade, I would be the first and best customer of that restaurant. Oh my God. I would move to whatever city uh, it opens in. Yes, that, that would be, that would, that would uh, you could call that the money minting machine, the restaurant, yep. because people would would have to have to go there. Yeah, all I want really in life is like Dominique Crenn to open a Chuck E. Cheese. How can we make somebody's got to do it? Somebody somebody's got to Dom- do it. Somebody call Dominique Crenn and 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 make this happen. Well, speaking of um, nostalgia and terror at death, we have a super awesome interview that's coming up after this interstitial music with Stella Parks of Braveheart. <laughs> that occurred to me um, literally seconds before we walked into the studio was that I had never said the name of your blog or now your cookbook out loud. And as soon as I sort of was quietly saying it to myself, I realized <laughs> the joke. <laughs> the terrible, terrible pun. It's a good one. It's a good one. So your blog and book is called I Always Was Just Like Brave Tart. Yeah. It's a tart that it's is brave. It's a tart that's brave. And it turned out I was putting the accent in the wrong place because it's brave tart. Yeah. Like the Mel Gibson movie. But but really, just more the pun. But more just the pun. Well, when, when I was starting out the blog, we were coming up with like all the terrible tart-based puns, or we wanted a food pun, and so tarts just kind of lent themselves to that. So we, for a long time, were going on on the working notion that it would be called Total Eclipse of the Tart. That's very good. Um, oh, but, that's But good. then my brother, my brother came up with Brave Tart, and it <laughs> was just so snappy and short and funny, and my brother's the best, so easy sell. And when did it launch? When when did Brave Tart oh, come into existence? 2010. That's very early in blog years. It was, yeah, yeah. A gray era for for like kind of punny blog names. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it was it was really, fun. and I felt like I came up with a lot of people who were also blogging at the same time, and so I have that like heart of a food blogger thing, and so there's a lot of food writers and, and chefs who do write for other publications, and they don't understand like the entire realm of food blogs that exist, and like. The sense of community that's there, and and that's been a really cool aspect for me to get exposed to, because not a lot of food bloggers in that way are also chefs. So uh, I felt like I was in an interesting position. But it I is really it. a whole completely separate track of the food yeah, universe. Yeah, it's, it's like a full ecosystem. It's amazing. I love it. I mean, you're still very much part of it, right? I feel like Serious Eats of the of the various food publications out there is one that's particularly plugged in. I think to the it, emotional tenor of the food blog. Well, m- maybe from their side, I feel like um, insights like, you know, if you look at the kitchen, all the commenters are linking back to their own food blogs. It's all food bloggers. And I don't feel like we're tapped into that same group of people as much. Maybe through social media, we're still plugged in on that. I think people are like on Twitter um, and Facebook maybe, but at least the the food blogs that I was involved in or the, the people that I knew was a little bit less sciencey than Serious mm-hmm. Eats can be. Well, that's the Kenji effect, right? Yeah, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Who's been a guest on the episode before, and we talked a lot about his his very sort of scientific method approach mm-hmm. to cooking, which is fascinating to look in the context of the work that you do at Serious Eats and also in your cookbook, Brave Tart, which, did I say it right? I'm worried now that I'm like getting the cadence 10 out of 10, great job. Yes, great. So in your cookbook, you do this very cool thing where you rigorously, almost like in a scholarly way, research the histories of these classic American desserts and break them down and tell their stories in a way that feels very similarly, academic is the wrong word, it makes it sound dry, but like similarly rigorous, mm-hmm. to repeat myself, to I the feel way like, that Kenji yeah, does like savory I, things. Yeah, I feel like when I read one of your recipes or like uh, in the same way that a Kenji or any really great recipe, you kind of understand the why of you do it, of, of why you do it, you know, like the how, why it comes together in the way that it does. And those are always the best kind of recipes as opposed to just kind of like follow all these steps, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did, I did want both in the, the history and the recipe itself to kind of establish that it's not just me saying this, like either this is backed up through historical references or it's backed up through science. Like It's not just like my random personal opinion on how things should be done. 
because why would you care what my random personal opinion is? Like, I'm trying to pull from, you know, a larger body of knowledge. So you were a restaurant pastry cook before mm-hmm. the blogging thing started. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was your academic and historical interest in pastry and dessert part of your life back then? No, not at all. Um, that really got kicked off with um, my friend Frances Lamb invited me to write a piece for Guilt Taste back in the day, and it was about red velvet cake. And we kind of were just like talking about like what kind of story is this going to be, and just kind of got into the idea that it'd be fun to dig into like where did it even come from, and that was really the genesis of like the historical research aspect of the book, and just realizing there's a lot of stories to tell that aren't being told about these food items that are common to us all. So I had already been writing a column for Serious Eats at that point, but that was more focused on the pop culture aspects of how media and advertising and commercials kind of influenced our childhood and the desserts that we like to eat at home. So it's kind of between like those two influences coming together where the book kind of touches on both, where there's a lot of vintage advertisements and a lot of talk about those kind of cultural influences, but then also the the historical and the research aspect, which was inspired by that red velvet piece. Um, Stella, I was reading an early review of the book on (laughs) Kentucky.com and you gave them a a quote, which I thought was really interesting, where you said, you have a different palate as a child with a higher tolerance for sugar and lower for bitter, which is something I never knew or even under, I thought your mouth was always the same as as it keeps growing, you know, and, um, or your mouth is always the same from when you're born to, you know, however long you live. But did you find that in your research or like, is that something, did you talk to people? I mean, how did you find that out and how does that influence, you know, any... Uh, recipes that you put together of these sort of nostalgic things. It's something that we've all somewhat experienced, you know, when as a kid you have a sip of mom and dad's coffee and you make this horrible face and you just think it's the most bitter, vile, awful sewer water that your parents drink or that, you know, family members or people that you know drink. And then as you get older, you know, maybe like this is like when you're in high school and you're trying to be cool and hang out at a coffee shop and you start sipping on it and you're like, this is terrible, but I'm going to do it. And you kind of like put yourself through it. And then eventually, you know, you get to be an adult and your your palate has matured and you like really crave those bitter flavors. And, you know, even the cocktail scene bitters are, are really emerging and bitter drinks are you know more popular than ever uh, in terms of like the predominant flavor profile in cocktails. We're moving away from all those like sugary sweet things. But our palates evolve and we change and our tolerances build and change. And I don't, I, you know, I don't have like the scientific data to, to point to, you know, what, what that process is. But, you know... Conversationally, we can all see that in, in our lives and the people that we know. And as you, you know, your taste in wine, like the kind of wine that you loved in college is not the wine that you drink 10 years later, probably. Um, so that's like part of the thing, you know, when people eat a snack food that they loved as a kid and they're like, this doesn't taste the same. They changed the formula. Well, it's totally possible. They could very well have changed the formula, but it's also entirely possible that your tolerance for sugar has plummeted and the things <laughs> that seemed like the subtle bitterness of an Oreo as a kid seemed really bracing. And as an adult, you're like, it's really not that bitter. But you kind of crave that like stronger flavor now as an adult. So you kind of have to adjust. So you have to overshoot your goal a little bit to match your adult expectations. So when you're developing a recipe, how much are you trying to recreate a memory? 100%. Yeah. Like, yeah, that's that's the goal. Because like you can't match what it actually is. Because what's the point? Like, if it was just like a perfect carbon copy I mean, honestly, go buy an Oreo at that point. Like, it's no harm to foul. Like, that's great. Um, but if you're going to be making it yourself, it needs to have whatever it was that you are reaching for as a kid. Like, this is this is my after-school memory, or this is the thing that we always brought to a Christmas party, or this is, you know, whatever random association you have with it uh, is really memory-based more than it's flavor-based anymore. So I want to go for that. So what is the point of making it yourself if you could just go out and buy an Oreo? Um, well, twofold. One, it, it doesn't taste the same anymore to you. Like, I mean, if you still like it, then great. You definitely shouldn't be picking Oreos. You should be buying them, and I don't have any problems with that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, for me, there's something fun about it. People get into all kinds of DIY stuff. Some people are avid gardeners and have, like, you know, ferns and ivies hanging all over their house. And some people, you know, are craftsmen of some variety and like to build things. And I like to bake. I like to spend an afternoon in the kitchen making stuff. So... I think a lot of the recipes hinge on that concept that you like being in the kitchen. And if you don't, this is definitely not the book for you, but I hope you enjoy the stories. Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm I not trying to know who I, would buy the. Yeah, it seems like if you're buying cookbooks and you hate cooking, well, maybe. No, there's you're this idea it. that a lot of people seem to push forward that there's some kind of moral superiority. Like, well, you should be baking, you know, like, or you should be giving your kids real mm. ingredients. And I, I don't 
subscribe to that. I, you should be baking because you want to and because it makes your life better. And if it's like you've got to pull some cup cupcakes together for a bake sale or something and you don't have the time, like grab a box mix, like you're okay, like it's fine. Um, but if you want to spend some time baking in the kitchen, like this is great. And sometimes you want to have a familiar flavor. You're craving the Rice Krispie treats that, you know, your grandma used to always make, but you want that thing of like, I made it myself. I didn't just melt down a bag of marshmallows. Like this is something I truly made. And if that's a craving or an inner desire that you have, I think, you know, you should be able to make your own marshmallow fluff and, and make that happen. And it's fun. It's really, it's kind of cool to say, you know, here's a sleeve of Thin Mints that I made myself and pull that out of your freezer. And people are kind of like awed, like, no way, like this tastes just like the real deal. Um, <laughs> and it's just fun. It's fun to see that reaction on people's faces. And again, if you don't find that satisfying, definitely you shouldn't do that. So when I was first dating, my husband, um, he's a big fan of Nutter Butters. Oh, yeah. That, which are, they're fantastic. And I, and, you know, it was one of those things where, like, Nutter Butters were, like, his thing. Like, mm-hmm. his friends would buy him packages of Nutter Butters for his birthday. And it was, you know, early days, and I was still trying very hard to impress him. And I decided that I would bake him homemade Nutter Butters. Right. And I found one of those, like, dupe recipes where they're like, mm-hmm. this is going to be exactly like it. And, like, it involved all sorts of crazy things. Like, you baked the cookies, and then to make the filling... You crushed the cookies and mixed them in with the filling to create the right texture. Like it was a whole wow. amazingly detailed series of steps to create something that was supposed to taste just like nutter butters. And I presented them to him like with just like joy and happiness. And I was like, I like you so much. I made you these cookies. <laughs> and bless his heart, he took a bite and he said, wow, Helen, these are almost as good. That's amazing. <laughs> wow. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So ever since then, I have felt nervous about this idea of replicating childhood memory store-bought desserts. I feel like it, it can have a dangerous downside. Almost as good, though, is really high praise in the realm of copycat recipes. I guess that's true. Because, well, there's just like a certain texture and flavor you're never going to replicate. And this is the flavor of, I have been in a bag for six months or whatever. Yeah. Like, it's just some kind of like mojo mm-hmm. happens in there. And and that's really intense. And also, there's a lot of textures that are hard to get at home. But the thing that I will add to that is a lot of the copycat recipes that you stumble across on the internet is just a home baker who has, has made it a couple times and they've put up this recipe for their blog. And there it is. Versus I've been developing these recipes for six years. So I would hope that they're being delivered with a greater degree of precision because I've had the time uh, to invest in making that so and to you know really researching the ingredients that can kind of push them in that direction. So maybe he'll be like, they're like 97% as good as... Oh, I mean, he meant it. In the <laughs> I married him. You know, like it worked out okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like... It wasn't like the 500 sandwiches oh, thing, God. right? No, no. Do you, do you yes. remember this? I'm sorry the, to invoke that. The, I'm sorry about that. What, I shouldn't have mentioned that. What was the that. deal with this? This guy, it was like a couple of years it ago, some an, guy said he proposed to his girlfriend after she made him 500 sandwiches. It was a New York Post, like, uh, like celebrity kind of entertainment journalist or kind of gossip journalist, too. That was her story, is that that's how she snagged her man, was that he was like, uh, if you can make me 500 sandwiches one a day for 500 days, then I'm yours. I think that I think that was the story. And seems then, like a terrible you know, movie. Yeah, she kind of painted it like it was like a fairy tale. But um, at the point that you've made someone 500 sandwiches, it sounds like you're already together. Yeah. Yes. I mean, if you're not cl- yeah, if you're not close to that person by sandwich <laughs> number 20, there's something kind of wrong. I would say. Well, you know? Also, like, what is she getting out of this? I would love to know. I mean, I hope that they are blissfully happy and that their marriage is beautiful and not built on some weird retrograde anti-feminist fantasy. I think that she she got a book deal out of it, maybe, and possibly movie options or something. Anyway. I don't want to say the gimmick of your cookbook because that makes it sound gimmicky. But the, the hook, the hook is, that, is that you do extraordinary amounts of research. I mean, there's a bibliography in your cookbook. Yeah, at, it's like, a lot. Like it's a sixteen lot. page bibliography in small text, and that, that's the abridged version. <laughs> I had something like eleven hundred um, distinct primary sources for this, and my agent was like, "Stella, <laughs> you really need to trim that down because your editor is going to kill you." Um, so we kind of just went with the ones so you that were went, the most. We picked the top six hundred. So you went way beyond Wikipedia. You went to libraries and you found old books. And this is like, I mean, what was that process like? Like, it took several years to, to make this book, yeah, right? Yeah, it was, it was three years. From, oh, I spent a year on the proposal and then worked 
and so part of the, the proposal time was me doing a lot of research then just to make sure the stories existed. I didn't want to like promise I'm going to do all this myth busting of American history and then like, <laughs> like oh, sorry, it's all true. I don't have anything to myth bust here. So I spent a year kind of in pre-production, if you will, um, researching that for the proposal and then two years writing the book. Um, I bought a lot of paper ephemera. eBay was a great source. I just like bought up boxes and boxes of old pamphlets and leaflets and cookbooks and things. I got like a 1950s Nabisco employee handbook and all kinds of like crazy things that just wow. kind of inform what the current climate was and food in those days. So what, I mean, I'm sure you uncovered uncountable stories, but what stories did you uncover that you just did not see coming? That I didn't see coming would be Oreos. Yeah. The kind of the history of Oreos and the the kind of rivalry that existed between Oreos and Hydrox, because Hydrox was the original. It was the the original chocolate sandwich cream cookie. And I did not know that. Yeah. And so then it's like this amazing story of of some of the founders in the company that would go on to establish Hydrox, like the the, the company that that it was. Um like their lawyer, their like vice president, and a couple other like key board members like split off and became part of the company that established Nabisco. And the original owner of this other company, um, Jacob Luce, established his own company, um, and it was called Luce Wiles, which is a really terrible name for a company. Luce Wiles. Yeah, it sounds like Ooh. it sounds like some kind of like old timey like insult against your neighbors or like a like, gastrointestinal distress. Like, Got some Luce Wiles. Sounds like a National Lampoon movie or something. Yeah. Luce Wild back on campus. Yeah, oh yeah, my yeah. God. It's like the goofiest, worst <laughs> sounding name ever. Um, but they introduced this cookie called Hydrox, and then within a few years, Nabisco introduced a complete copycat replica in every way, shape, or form. And kind of the ongoing rivalry between the two companies, and even even going down to the name Oreo, I believe, is like a direct dig at at Loose Wiles slash Sunshine, which is what the company went on to become. Um, Why? So, How's Oreo? A so, oh, this is like a big spoiler alert. I would have to like, it's like a, a it's a long story. Okay, well, can you tell the the thirty second version? The thirty second version is the laurel plant, like a, a laurel wreath, like the crown you would get if you won the Olympics, was a really important symbol to Hydrox. And it's the, the design that was around every Hydrox cookie was this like laurel wreath. And when Oreo came out at the time, a lot of their other products that Nabisco was making all had plant names. Like they had this cookie called Avena, which is like from Avino, which is oats. Uh -huh. And they had one called Anola, and it was a shortening of canola. And even the package had a picture of a canola flower on it. Very thematic. Yeah. So it was like a really strong theme. Um, but there's a plant called Oreo Daphne, and it's a mountain laurel. So, oh. So that's where I believe it's a beautiful word. the name Oreo comes from. Because they stole the laurel. Because they stole the laurel. That's and vicious. They put a laurel on, I mean, go look at an Oreo. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right there. This could be a movie. This could be like the thing they adapt <laughs> the from your, story. your book. The vicious battle for sandwich cookie kingdom. But that it like, means something. And so there's all these people who like put out theories of what does Oreo mean? And they say like there's this really weird one where it's like the two O's are supposed to represent the wafers and the R E in the middle of Oreo represents cream. Like that's that, like that insane. Like, it doesn't make any sense. But that that's like an actual viable theory on the internet that people are like, well, this is what it means. And then some people say that Oreo, the ore is for French for gold because the packaging was originally gold. Mm. And I don't I don't know that we've established that was even true, but that's also a really <laughs> like stretch uh, of an explanation. So how often do you eat packaged Oreos personally? Personally, not, not terribly often. I don't eat a lot of sweets in my downtime because I eat them eight to 12 hours a day for my job. Yeah, you were, um, <laughs> you were saying right before we went on the air, you're drinking a a LaCroix, a, a pure beverage of the era. And yeah, you have the flavorless LaCroix, pure. The flavorless LaCroix. Well, no, you know, yeah. it comes in all sorts of flavors. Yeah. As everybody. Technically, in Helen, the flavor is pure. The flavor is pure. The, the, it is it is the null flavor. It's the flavor of purity. Yes. And and you were you were telling <laughs> our AP, Dan, that, that like you like to have a break from flavor. Yeah, I need, I need a flavor timeout. That's I is amazing. Never <laughs> well, it's just it kind of gets exhausting like once you've eaten so many especially when you're in the midst of recipe development where you're just eating like the same thing that's like slightly changing over and over and over and over again. Your mouth is just like help me. It's like being overstimulated. Do you have any foods that are like that? Like when you're like I need to x out a flavor but I actually have to eat something. Like a nothingness food purity flavored food. Yeah. Uh, mm, 
maybe just a baguette. Yeah, I feel like bread is just like a plain, crusty. You know, there's. I mean, it obviously has flavor, but it's not. It's a. It's a canvas, a lot of the time. And so just having like a nice chunk of baguette is always really nice. So one thing I'm curious about is, um, do you have any rules in terms of like recipe development? Like, are you like I need to test every recipe after it's written seven times? Or um, well, I'm an extremely compulsive person in the first place. So there's not even for serious eats. There's not any recipe that I publish that I haven't made a minimum of twelve times um, because I do a lot of baking. Uh, but a lot of that is I'll you know be making something six or seven times just to get the flavor that I want to make sure that the spice levels are right or that the cocoa is intense enough or that the, the texture of the dough is, is workable in an adequate way. And then once I've locked down all those variables, at that point you've like played with the basic structure of a recipe hasn't changed through like five or six iterations. So at that point you know the recipe fundamentally works. And then at that stage I start playing with other things like trying it with a high-protein flour to see if that changes anything or trying it with softer butter mm-hmm. to see at what point you know, what's the ideal dough temperature here that you're going to get too much spread if it's too warm or you're going to see cracking if it's too cold. So I'll put it through a couple like paces that way. And so then by the end of it, it's been about 12 times. And recently I've been having a kind of like crowdsourcing some recipe testing from readers. For the book, we had recipe testers, formal recipe testers that came in after all the recipes were locked down and and tested them. Um, like kitchen developers, not just like, I always thought recipe developers were like friends and family, <laughs> like or recipe testers, like, I'll test your <laughs> recipe. And like, thanks, Uncle Bob. Um, but these were like paid professionals uh, who went through. But lately for Serious Eats, I'll be like Instagramming something that I'm working on. And someone will be like, oh my God, my daughter's third birthday party is like this weekend. Can I please have this recipe early? And it's kind of heartbreaking. You don't want to be like, no. <laughs> Enjoy your party. Screw child. Yeah, like, I don't care about our third birthday. So, yeah, it's just like, it's kind of like, oh, it's your favorite strawberry or whatever. You're doing them a service because you're not going to hand them a recipe unless you really, you know, you can really get behind it and know, know everything, yeah, you know. Yeah, but it's it's also fun. Like, so sometimes I will, like, if there's if the story is heartbreaking enough, I'll share the recipe a little bit early and be like, okay, well, you know, try it out. Bear in mind this has not been edited professionally or, or looked over by anyone but me. And then sometimes people will make it, and it's great, and then I feel extra confident about it. And sometimes they have some type of insight, like, oh, no, it completely, like, liquefied on my countertop. I'm like, uh, mm, ruined yes. my child's birthday party, you and it's all You don't have any fault. air conditioning or, you know, something. Like, I can kind of, like, <laughs> realize something was out of alignment in terms of, like, the recipe itself is solid, but I haven't quantified a variable that people should be aware of. Like, for me, I know room temperature is very important if it's, like, above 74 or 75 degrees in your kitchen, Everything's a heat source to butter. And I know that because I've been a pastry chef working in a 100-degree kitchen and understand that you have to compensate for that. But the average person who's just like experiencing a heat wave in the city doesn't necessarily realize that their countertop itself is melting their pie crust. Mm-hmm. So um, sometimes like reader feedback back like that on an early recipe can kind of help me realize things that I haven't bothered to express that need to be expressed. With so many different variables, particularly in baking, which is such a famously precise mm-hmm. cooking act, is there such a thing as a foolproof recipe? Like, is there something where you could say, like, I'm putting this out into the world. As long as you do exactly what I say, it will be perfect. I think if if you can trust someone to actually do exactly what you say, yeah, you can have something that really approaches a foolproof recipe. Um, but that also presumes that they've, they've gone through all the precautions that I give. Like, you need to have an oven thermometer. And if you can't verify the temperature that your oven's running at, it doesn't matter how amazing the recipe is and how perfectly you execute it and how meticulously you source your ingredients. Like, it's 50 degrees too hot in there. Your cookies are not going to do great. Or, you know, conversely, if it's significantly lower than the ideal temperature, cakes are going to rise, you know, very poorly. So if, if you can lock down all the variables and know how to and pay attention to someone who's telling you, like, you can get really close to that kind of foolproof thing. But... 99% of people aren't going to go to that. They're just going to pick up a book, open it, it's going to fall to a page, and they're going to go for it. Or they're going to type something in on Google, and they're going to like land on this recipe. And so in that context, no, I don't think a foolproof recipe exists <laughs> for baking. There's Well, because baking is less forgiving, right? If you're working in like a stir fry or sauteing something in high heat like yeah there's just there's just so many interdependent variables. So you know like someone's like, "Oh, well, I don't like recipes so sweet, so I always cut back the sugar and Sweetness is the last thing I would ever consider when determining the amount of sugar in a recipe. Um, it's there for structure. It's there for moisture retention. It's there to you know modulate the the water content to keep 
gluten from developing excessively. It's there to provide tenderness and crunch and all these other things. And so if you cut the sugar back by any significant percentage, you're 100% going to get different results. Um, so you got to, yeah, like every, everything depends on everything else. There's no like one ingredient you can kind of just like slip out like a Jenga tower. It's all going to come, it's all going to come down. Hey, Helen, you know, we have a lot of things that we do related to this podcast that you don't hear on on the podcast itself. And someday we might actually need to get an assistant. Do you know how we would go about getting an assistant by chance? Oh, my God, Greg, I have no idea. Well, would you believe that actually there is? It's ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter? Yes. Oh, my God. I've heard of ZipRecruiter. On ZipRecruiter, you you post one job listing and it sends it out to 100 plus job sites. And their incredibly powerful technology efficiently matches exactly the right people to your job. You just sit back and let it happen. Yes, that's why ZipRecruiter is different, because unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. That's incredible. You know, I feel like our listeners are going to want to find out right now why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates. And if you want to, beautiful listeners listening at home, you can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free, for completely free right now by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. That's eat, E-A-T, like the first three letters of eat or upsell. ZipRecruiter.com slash eat. So one thing um, I'm curious to pick your brain about, Stella, is uh, you have in the in the title of your book, Iconic American Desserts. And you know, Americana and exploring these American desserts has been kind of a, a you know your your focus for a while. We were just talking in the Eater offices uh, the other day about how there are some other big American cookbooks, American food cookbooks coming down the pipeline in the next few months, and uh, we're just kind of I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts on like, do you think that American food is kind of having a moment, and people are looking back to to figure out how to you know embrace it or you know, is this is that just a sort of coincidence, you know, or like as you've been working on this, do you think that there's been an increased interest in this old Americana? I think some of it's like the Google effect where that people in, say, the olden days. OK, so Fig Newtons have been around since like 1893. So there's no one alive who has grown up in an era that did not have Fig Newtons. And. I think, say, someone who was like, in the 1950s, craving a Fig Newton, and they wanted a recipe, like, where are they going to get one? And so I think the interest has always been there, but now people can just, like, jump on their computer and be like, I want a Fig Newton, and, like, type in for a recipe. So I think this, like, surge in popularity, because it is, there is a lot more interest being generated in these, like, Americana type of recipes and, and traditions. But I think a lot of it is just that people now have the means to acquire the knowledge that they're seeking, where previously they just must have been, like, man, I wonder how old a Fig Newton is, or I wonder <laughs> how you would make that. I don't know, like <laughs> mysteries of life, oh well, and just kind of move on. But now we can satisfy that knowledge. So I remember having some cookbooks on my on my parents' bookshelf that were like restaurant recipes decoded. And I, this was, it feels like one of those beautiful things that was destroyed by the internet. It was yeah. like these, this sort of cottage industry of this like secret knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Where it was, you know, here is how to make, and I guess this was the, the 90s, so like the chain restaurants were all yeah. like Bennigan. It was probably a like, Todd Wilbur book. This guy was like a, that was like what he did. Like he, I think he still does Todd that. Todd Wilbur, Yeah, huh? his name's Todd Wilbur, and he does all these like deconstructed restaurant things, and like here's how to make Applebee's grilled chicken strips or, you know, whatever. Um and yeah, but they were always presented as this really hokey gimmick, right? Mm-hmm. But the cover is not like, this is going to go on the shelf next to Julia. Like, that's no. not going to happen. Yeah, like, this like... thing is like embarrassed, a little bit embarrassing the way it's packaged. And that was something that I, I did want to address in the book and say, you can make these things and it also not be this horrible kitsch. Right. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with horrible kitsch. Like, that's kind of its own thing. But, that you know, you don't have to treat it as like it's this goofy, self-indulgent, guilty pleasure. You can say like, no, it's the legit thing to do. I would like to make a fake Newton. Yeah, I mean, there's real genius behind a lot of these these old things that we love, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I totally totally think that a lot of the companies, especially with processed foods, you know, they had to come up with some pretty ingenious solutions for packaging and shelf life and stability and that type of thing that actually translate into like really cool tricks for the home cook that people don't you wouldn't think that it's there, but if you kind of dig in, it is. What's an example? Um, McDonald's apple turnovers or McDonald's apple pies, as it were. They they're partially thickened with dehydrated apple powder, which is freeze-dried apples that have been ground into a powder. And you can walk into any Trader Joe's or Whole Foods or jump on Amazon and buy a pouch of 
freeze-dried apples, grind it up and mix it into an apple pie filling and help boost the thickening process and also layer in some more flavor without needing to like up the cornstarch or the tapioca starch or whatever you're using. So I like to do things like that. Like that's a completely industrial trick of the trade, but people can do that at home and there's no reason not to and it's kind of fun. That's an amazing trick. That's like real news yeah, you can I, I, use. <laughs> you know, next time I make an apple pie, I'm going to try that trick out. Is it is that part of your apple pie recipe in the book? It's not part of my classic apple pie, but I do have a copycat McDonald's apple turnover style hand pie. And I do use that. In fact, there's no cornstarch in that recipe. It's thickened exclusively through the use of freeze-dried apples. I like that you're insisting that it's a turnover. Like, is is there... So, so you know, let's, <laughs> let's go down this path. On the continuum of, like, turnovers, hand pies, pies, uh-huh. where, where are the lines here for you? Okay, so I think I keep saying turnover because in my mind it's a breakfast food. And that's when I would have a McDonald's apple pie. Like it wasn't like my, I've had dinner, now I'm heading over to McDonald's for an apple pie slice or whatever. <laughs> it's like I'm on my way to school and I can pick one of those up. It's like hot and you know, I'm hot and warm. It's like November and I'm twelve. Like that's a perfect time to have an apple hand pie. Okay. So if it's a hand pie, it gets to count as a breakfast food. Well, I was I was trying to be correct and say hand pie as the more approved lingo, but I, I in my mind it's a turnover, which I think of as a breakfast food. So I think of of a turnover as something that's folded mm-hmm. and a hand pie as something that is two distinct pieces of pastry that are sealed up. Uh, or, or maybe maybe a turnover is a subset of hand pie, but I think of turnover very specifically something where it's been turned over. Yeah, it's over. usually like triangular shaped. Or like or like a half moon or something like mm-hmm. that, where like literally the dough was turned over. Maybe that is also part of my subconscious categorization. Up. Yeah. Well, because the, the mm-hmm. apple, I think we just call them hand pies in the book, but I call them turnovers in my heart. But they are folded over. I cut out like a really big rectangle and then put the apple filling down and then fold it over so it becomes an even skinnier rectangle, which is the appropriate shape for McDonald's apple of pie. Of course. Yeah, those little pies, they're they are not quite big enough, I feel like. Well, don't they have like two for a dollar sometimes? I mean, I feel like you I feel like if you're in any way hungry, you got to eat two of those pies, you know? I can't remember the, the last McDonald's time I ever had ones, one. I had one writing the book. That was probably the last time I had one. And then I've had 10,000... During the writing of the book, <laughs> so when you I met my quota, so you you don't like go back and check it again against the original once you hit your recipe. Yeah, once once I hit it, it, well, then at that point, it's like it's too late now. Yeah, I don't I don't want to find out. <laughs> it's a scary thing to think about. I'm sure I'm sure you nailed it though. I mean, I'm sure it's nailed you know, it. or or that yours is the. Yours is the, probably the better. I mean, I'm assuming it's it's the better version of that. You know, because it hasn't been sitting in like that little. Um, tube right by the cash register. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's it's been aging. Um, I, it's been I aging, you know yeah. this is I, there used to be a time when McDonald's was pre making all of their burgers and sandwiches and everything, and they would right. sit under heat lamps and those like slidey trays. And then I feel like at some point, maybe I was like in high school or something. I remember very distinctly they did this big advertising campaign where they were like, everything is going to be made fresh to order, mm-hmm. and I was so sad. Because part of what I loved was the fact that it had been sitting for a while and had kind of... It develops a unique flavor Yeah, at that point. And, you know, I think this is, like, their apple pies have been... Maybe they're not fried anymore, too. Like, they're baked. I don't know. There's some... But they sit there under heat lamps forever. I do think they're they're baked now instead of being fried. So everything is different. And, like, the present is Mm. terrible. And it's important that we have books like yours... Up is down, left is right. ...to live in nostalgia. Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, obviously, I'd like to think so. I spent six years of my life on this, so I'm kind of biased. Well, on that note, it's actually time for us to go into something we like to call the lightning round. We're going to ask you some questions. You can answer them however you want. We may or may okay. not judge you for the things oh, that you say. Um, question one. What is your favorite Star Trek movie? My favorite Star Trek movie? Um, I read somewhere you were a Star Trek yeah, fan. Yeah, no. Um, my favorite Star Trek movie is First Contact. Yeah, because <laughs> it's so great. Is that the one? No, that is that the one that has both Next Generation and the original Star. No, it's the that's one with the, the one after that one, right? No, no, no. no. First, con- First Contact is the one where it's well, it's annoying because they have an episode called First Contact, so I feel it's like really dirty maneuver to like recycle the oh, title yeah, for bullshit. that. But it's not. Cool. It's like it's the one that opens up with. Um, Data has been like spying on this like town. Is it the one where Data dies? Is that a major spoiler? Spoiler alert! 
Lord. I'm it's sorry. 2017. <laughs> we can't talk about. I'm not. Gonna, I'm not going to address this. Wait, this is like one of the last Star Trek movies. This right? is like of the the TNG this, movies. This is before it got. Yeah, to the very end. Oh, right. I don't. This is. The, it's not the one where the thing to me, I, the Chris Pine like, stuff. But there's like there's this amazing moment. So, so, so <laughs> Picard. So Picard. So Picard falls a little bit in love in this one. I didn't know that Data dies actually. Yeah. Well, I mean, you okay, know, he so. powers down. I'm gonna down. ignore the fact that he said Data. I know, Greg. Data. Data. It's Data. Oh, what sorry, Data. What are you, Dr. Pulaski? Get out of here. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I watched every episode of that damn show as a teenager. Uh, it's been years since I thought about it, but yeah, it is data. We, my husband and I recently rewatched all of Star Trek. And actually, um, I think I misspoke about the plot of First Contact, so I feel really bad because First Contact's on with the Borg. Um, oh. I don't know. I'm oh, s- yeah. I'm so sorry. Can we, like, I'm going to get, like, destroyed by people okay, who well, are going to call me. I'm going to be, like, hashtag fake, fake gamer girl. No. Hashtag fake geek girl. Well, first of all, those are bullshit concepts. And I mean, second no, of all, I, obviously we will defend you. And <laughs> third of all, I think it's totally appropriate that we like ambushed you with questions about Star Trek on a food podcast. Man, and I just I named the wrong like, movie in my Okay, so so like well <laughs> let's like rewind in our hearts. Stella, what's your favorite <laughs> Star Trek movie? <laughs> Can I just stick with first contact. <laughs> let's not change let's not change anything here. No, that one, that one's good because I think First Contact was the one, wasn't it? There, there's some scene where, um, uh, who's number two on the Enterprise? Riker. So sad, I don't remember. Riker. Riker. God doesn't damn he go it, out? Greg, you're on, fired. Doesn't he? Doesn't he go out on? Um, doesn't he have some fight out on the ship outside of the ship with maybe a Borg guy? I think that was Worf. Oh, okay. <laughs> but it has first, been a while. I think it's time to see for first contact again. Well, okay, so well, here's here's the the full disclosure on this is I haven't seen any of the Star Trek movies since they were in theaters because my husband has not fully completed his Star Trek journey, so we haven't been able to start oh. in on the movies. So oh. I am definitely pretty rusty in in this recall arena. Although okay. I have watched every episode ten thousand times, so the episodes well. I'm good on. In first contact, Picard de- delivers this like really amazing like monologue about the Borg and like we have to draw the line. It's kind of like his like Captain Ahab moment. Do you think about it like in times of weakness to give yourself strength? <laughs> I do because he eventually had to admit that he was wrong, and that's important to admit <laughs> that, that you're wrong in life and that you're you know you're chasing a whale that you should probably just give up on. It's an important lesson to learn. <laughs> okay, Stella, <laughs> you travel a whole lot. Yeah. What is your airport strategy? Oh my god. Um, I need a new airport strategy because it's not working for me right now. Yeah? Um, Because LaGuardia is a hot mess. Yeah? (laughs) I think it depends on what terminal you're you're in. Well, so I've I've been—I fly up to New York for a week every month, so that means I'm coming in and out of LaGuardia twice a month, uh, and I have been doing so for the past, like, almost two years now. So I've I've been doing this for a while, and it's always been fine. Like, I just—I go to the airport, I fly in, I fly out. It's no big deal. And the last month has been a nightmare. I've had— Four flights that were completely canceled and, and rescheduled and rerouted altogether, but not until after I'd been there and waiting around for like three to four hours. And I've had my travel plans pushed back as many as 36 hours. I've had oh my, my baggage sent to the wrong place. I've had it take me an hour just to get out of LaGuardia. Like, so there's not really like an airport cocktail that can fix that. So, oh, like what is your airport strategy for like surviving in your airport times? Well, it, you know, we could go anyway you want with the um, question. Well, so that was my, that was on my on my mind recently because my last flight out of New York, um, I was in the airport for like thirty six hours and it was just a nightmare. That seems truly oh awful. So I was like, I have to make this stop. Yeah. Um, well, if you if you can't really call up any positive airport memories, I think we can we can uh, give you a pass on this one. I, I tend to bring foods with me. I'll, I'll order something right before I leave and like have like a baguette stuffed with things that I'm allergic to to eat later. What are you allergic to? <laughs> I'm allergic to pork and I can't stop eating it because it's made of pork. So oh, yeah, that's I've been heard a real that about pro- it. But it's made out of pork. Yeah, and that's been a real problem for that me to give up. That uh, sounds prob- problematic, yeah. Like, I just want some I prosciutto mean, on my sandwich. Like, what's so wrong with that? I heard a really good pork product joke yesterday. Okay. That I had, I thought I had heard all of the good pork, bad pun jokes and all of the good pork, pork jokes. Pork product-based humor is This is really good. good. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. How do you keep bacon from curling in the pan? Oh, no. I don't know. Take away its tiny brooms. Oh, no. Oh, that's so good. That, I love it. That, I, I love that one. That, my husband's a big curling fan. He's got to like that one. Oh, that was. I'm going to tell that one during the Olympics. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really, really seasonal. Joke. 
No, that was those. Yeah. Every four years, you can tell it. One of our eater contributors shared that joke with me. It's like the best. And, and she That's tweeted so it and I like retweeted it. And then <laughs> out of nowhere, like a vegan crusader came in to oh, our gosh. mentions and was like, how can you say that? Pigs have the intelligence of three-year-olds. And I was like, this is like, literally, it's a joke. Like, it's literally, uh-huh. we're not advocating. Like, also, no. you should not put curling brooms in a pan. Uh, they yeah. will melt. Also, curling is done on ice, not a skillet. Like, <sighs> wrong, wrong, check. wrong. Fake news. Um, okay, uh, lightning round question number four. Uh, this is. I'm just kind of curious to hear your thoughts uh, on the sub the substance known as cookie butter. Do you eat it? Do you like it? Do you use it? I have a recipe for cookie butter coming up. Oh, but it is based on the fact that I also make my own biscoff, so it's kind of. So Biscoff butter is like a thing, yeah. right? Speculoos yeah. spread mm-hmm. has been around for a while, and mm-hmm. but like now increasingly. There are non-speculous cookie right, butters. Right, all kinds of cookie butters are becoming a thing. It's the most popular item at Trader Joe's. Yes. That's what I yeah, read. They've, they've done a lot of work in promoting that. So the thing that blew my mind when I was like reading the ingredients on a jar of mm-hmm. Biscoff spread one day is that it's literally made out of cookies. Like It's not just like... <laughs> Wait, have you <laughs> I have to show you a video later that yeah. is amazing about it is made of cookies, about cookie butter like, in you, particular. You, you bake the cookies, and then you pulverize them. Uh-huh. And then you blend them with some sort of emulsifier. And so, like, you could just, like, if you were to take Biscoff spread and spread it on a Biscoff. Like, Biscception. Yeah, you're just, it's cookie mm-hmm. on cookie. Whoa. Yeah. Which is totally mind-blowing. But, but it's, like, literally spreadable cookie. Yeah, and so in, in parts of Europe, it's actually become something that they use the way we, we would use peanut butter. So they would, like, use it in, like, a laminated dough. Like, we might be like, oh, they make these cool peanut butter croissants. Like, we've got cookie butter croissants. Or, they you know, they would do... It's pulverized cookie inside of a croissant. You can make wow. croissant butter and then make croissant butter croissants. Yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot that you could do. I mean, obviously, it's not a pure fat, so it's going to behave a little bit weirdly, not like <laughs> butter or like peanut butter. Um, but it's a tasty, tasty thing to make if you if you like it. And granted, that is a big F. Some people it, don't it, like cookie butter. It it's made of cookies and it's weird. But like if you like, have been subscribing to this like cookie butter thing for a while, like a lot of people when they first had it, it was just like really like latched onto it as a concept and like use it like to dip like tart apples or to put in like what you do for like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, like put it in a sandwich or put it in French toast or something. So it definitely has its applications, but some people like eat it with a spoon and that kind of traumatizes me because... How is that different from just eating a cookie? Well, so it's it's 50, 57% cookies, I think, and the okay. rest is like oils. So it has a really different mouthfeel. So it kind of just sits in your mouth there a little bit, which can be upsetting because it's not, it's melting... Like at a very high temperature, so it's not melting very fast on your tongue. So you're just like waiting for it to melt and just kind of slowly sitting. So there. what do you think is the optimal use for cookie butter? I definitely think something like French toast or spread it in crepes, um, incorporate it into something else, or like yeah, sandwich cookies like bis- exception. Like Nutella style, right? Yeah, like it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. Like that's a that's, a, that's a great way dessert to spread. Use it as a spread. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cookie butter. Well, Stella, our final lightning round question for you the Eater Upsell Lightning Run Classic. If you were driving down a long, beautiful open highway in a convertible mm. with the top back and great music playing and you're singing along at the top of your lungs, what song is it? I, w- I would never be singing at the top of my lungs. Even if you're alone? Alone in the desert. Hundreds of that's, miles in every direction. That's a lot more extroversion than I actually have in my <laughs> my personality <laughs> makeup. Um, I, I would be thinking very intensely to the lyrics All of right. that song. Which song? Um, oh, man. What would it be? I'm wow, that's like totally shutting me down. Um, well, the f- Cookie Inception by the Biscoff Boys. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to remember the fake band name we came up with earlier. The Loose Wiles or whatever. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, oh uh, yeah, uh, Rotting Sugar. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's the punk remix. I well, so when I first when I first got a car was when that um, that Volkswagen commercial with Nick Drake. Oh, was like really popular. Oh, yeah. yeah, I didn't have a Volkswagen yeah. by any stretch, but that was just like when I first got a car, that was like a commercial. And I lived way out in the countryside with my family. And like to get anywhere, it was a long drive through the country. And so I would totally roll my windows down and listen to some Nick Drake. So when you said that, the first thing I thought of was Nick Drake. Then that's the right answer. That's not really like in current rotation. The commercial really t- touched a lot of people. I remember it so visit. You know, it had a big impact on very much at the forefront on marketing in general and the use of music. And there's like a whole like case study that's been done on how that that such a wildly successful marketing strategy for them to just like go sort of with like and for cool Nick Drake and his music. estate like, I mean obviously he, yeah. he's, he's passed away but like, there's this huge resurgence in his music he you know during his lifetime never saw any type of real success uh, 
which was, you know. I think I definitely got that depressing Nick Drake record because of that commercial, you know. Yeah, which which one? (laughs) The one one depressing one. The one that it's on. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. They're they're, right. The Elliott Smith of his day. There's a lot of of sad Nick Drake music out there. (laughs) Well, on that super upbeat note. Bye, guys. Yeah, it was. This was fun. Yeah. We'll put, like, lay down some Nick so Drake you're at Brave Tart on Twitter. I am Brave Tart on Twitter. On excellent Instagram, likewise. And your book, Amazing. Brave Tart, is available everywhere. Buy it on the internet everywhere. or at your local bookstore, or you know, stop sell if you see her on the street and demand a copy. I had that happen kind of recently. <laughs> oh, no, really? I was at I was in an event, and there was someone there who actually had my book with them. And they came up and asked me to if I would sign it, and I felt really bad because it was someone else's cookbook event. Like, uh, so I was like at someone else's cookbook event. That's like getting proposed to at someone else's wedding uh, right. or something. So like, it's like, um, so anyhow, I just felt like because then, pe- then people are like looking at me and they can see this book, and I'm signing it. Like, why is this other person signing books at this book <laughs> event? And I was just like, but at the same time, it was incredibly sweet, and I was like, really, you know, I've never had that happen before, so that was kind of fun. Well, it's about to happen a lot. Brave Tart oh my gosh. is out and real and in the world, and it's beautiful. I'm holding it in my hands right now. Stella Parks, thank you so much for joining us. Thank on the you Eater so Upsell. much for having me. And yeah, thanks, Stella. Reminder to all of you folks listening: if you're not already subscribed to the Upsell, hit that subscribe button. And if you are already subscribed, thank you. And if you liked what you heard today, make sure you check out our archive. We talk with all sorts of interesting people all across the food world. If you're super into things like pastries and desserts and what we talked about today, you might want to listen to our episodes with Jenny Britton Bauer, who we mentioned earlier, folks like David Leibovitz, the iconic dessert blogger and cookbook author. There's all sorts of cool stuff right there in the Europe Upsell archive on your podcast listening device. The Eater Upsell is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network and is recorded at Vox Media Studios in San Francisco and New York City. Your two hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that other guy whose voice you hear every week, Greg Morbido. Our producer is AP Dan, more commonly known as Dan Janine. Our editorial producer is Monica Burton. Our executive producer is Maureen Janone. Our studio team is Miles Ewell and Paige Bethan. Our editor-in-chief and fearless leader is Amanda Clute. And the most important person in this entire process, the one person without whom none of this would be possible, past, present, or future, is you, beautiful and brilliant listener. It's you. Thank you for everything you do. We love you.